to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 63 for September 22nd, 2011. So we're jumping into our second publishing year of Star Trek The Original Series, issues number 13, 14, and 15, which came out at the end of, what, 1990? Yep. October. Uh, actually... Actually, I think these dates kind of jump into uh, 91, January of 91, these three. Yeah, for whatever reason, they didn't have a November one. So right. it goes October, December, and then January. Right. I thought that was rather odd, but... Yeah, I figure they'll probably double up sometime in 1991. There you go. Because at some point, they start releasing these comics twice a month. So both Next Generation oh. and Original Series were coming out with two issues a month for wow. a year. Wow, they really had the uh, production down, Pat. Turn the mechanical crank. Oh, yeah, they were cranking them out, and they were cranking out the books and anything else you could throw Star Trek on. Right. And, you know, being, being a kid, I was trying to buy as much as my allowance would let me. <sighs> it's very good. <laughs> okay. So, so these three are written by Peter David, and he has a special guest author. A Bill very special Mom- very special guest author. I wonder, so did Bill Mummy actually come up with the idea and then for, you know, the basic outline of these stories and then he worked with Peter David to make it uh, comic booky or what? Do you know? I do not know. Well, I know that Bill Mummy's a, a big comic book fan. Oh, I didn't know that. And I, if I'm not mistaken, he's written, well, I know he's written some Lost in Space comic books, um, but I think he's written other comic books as well. Right. And, of course, everybody knows who Bill Mummy is. Oh, I guess we should mention that, huh? Just to be sure, because somebody may not know. So, Will Robinson, of course. The original Will Robinson. Yep. From the uh, TV show. And he was also in the original Kick the Can episode of The Twilight Zone. Oh, very good. And, uh, very good. Uh, Well, he, he was a fairly popular little child actor, wasn't he? Well, I think he did kind of the rounds, kind of like Ron Howard and Clint Howard did, where they were... Like, you know, tons of TV shows where he's the special kid guest star of the week or whatever. There you go. Exactly. And uh, uh, w- was he in uh, Courtship of Eddie's Father or no? No, I don't think so. Okay. Maybe I'm mixing that up with maybe uh Was it Courtship Howard. of... Uh, I'm thinking of something else. Never mind. Yeah, there was an old TV show and that turned into a TV series. I'm thinking about the movie. That happened before uh, the TV series. I don't know. It wasn't uh, Ricky Schroeder? <laughs> no. Well, oh, Ricky Schroeder was in Little Lord Fauntleroy or whatever it was, right? Uh, Richie Rich? Richie Rich? I, oh, Richie uh, Schroeder, the guy from Silver Spoons, and then he went on to be on NYPD Blue? That's the actor. But, yeah, uh, yeah Silver Spoons. So... The Silver Spoons character was named, what would you call him? Ricky Schroeder. No, I know the guy's name, but 
the the character name you just spouted off, which I've never heard before. I didn't. Oh, oh, oh! He was in another movie called Little Lord Lord Falthoroy. Yeah, something like that. Had Alec Guinness in it too. Obi Wan Kenobi. Oh boy! It was when he was real little. It was it was pre Silver Spoon days. I guess so. I guess. Anyways, so. anyways, that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about Bill Mummy. Yeah, and by the way, the original Corchavetti's father starred Ron Howard and uh, Glenn Ford. Ah, Superman's dead. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't think of Glenn Ford necessarily as that, but... Uh, he'll always be Paul Kent to me. Exactly. <laughs> Paul Kent. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so Bill Mummy, big science fiction... Uh, I think he's a fan, which is why I like him. He also was in uh, Babylon 5 for yes, he was. a few years. He's very good in that. And he also had like guest stars on various um, comic book-related TV shows. So he was in some episodes of Superboy, which was coming out about this time earlier. Well, everybody, everybody saw that. I, I know, right? Who missed it? Yeah, me. <laughs> Interesting piece of information then we'll get on to the story um peter david who writes these comics and bill mummy who is the co-author of these produced and wrote or co-created a tv show called space cases in 1996 that ran for a few years on nickelodeon really yeah so i think it's kind of cool that you know obviously they they worked with each other here in the early 90s and then five years later or whatever they get uh, a tv show that is very interesting. So I don't want to delay this anymore because we're we're delaying it a fair amount. But space cases, I mean, so base, really fast. What was that? It was a TV show about some students. So it was it was younger kids, maybe early teens or whatever, and they're at a space academy type thing, and they end up getting on this alien ship and then going out, and it's almost like a Lost in Space Voyager. Uh, you know, Stargate universe type thing where they're on this alien craft and then they're having adventures and stuff out in the in the universe. And they can't get home. I guess. I don't know. I never watched it. I watched like half of the first episode on YouTube. Right. Um, I, I wanted to watch more because I know George Takei is in several episodes. He oh, plays cool. a reoccurring villain. <laughs> That's but great. But what, what I thought was really interesting was that one of the main characters, uh, her name is... Jewel uh, Stati, mm-hmm. and she's the the woman who played Kaylee on Firefly and Serenity. Oh, the cool. engineer there, right? So the that must be one. one of her. Yeah, the one I like the like the best in the whole show. Oh, you do? I didn't know that. I really liked her. That's why I didn't like the movie as much because I didn't think they gave her enough all that to much do. to do. Yeah, that's true. But so you I like, really liked her. So you liked her in Stargate Atlantis, then? She's in Stargate Atlantis. Yeah. Well, then I might have to watch it. Uh, the later episodes. She came on after Firefly was over, and she kind of shifted over. Uh, same time that uh, uh, Claudia Black and Brian, what's his name? from Ben. Ben, ben Browder? Yeah, Ben Browder from uh, Farscape. Right. Because they came in later, too, right? They came in later, right, and, and replaced uh, uh, when... When uh, Colonel O'Neill left, because he was getting too old. Uh, anyway, yes. So it's kind of interesting. A lot of these sci-fi shows, especially Stargate, 
took a lot of refugees from other shows and integrated them into their casts, and I think that was a great idea. Well, yeah, it got people to watch it. Uh, I think so, and why not? They're really good. They're really good actors. Work them in. Yep, and and all those shows that that uh, we talked about, Farscape and uh, Firefly, and Firefly, canceled way too early. Oh, way too early. And and of course, the worst one was, and the classic one, of course, was uh, Firefly. One season. Yeah. That is it, baby. And I'm not even sure if that was a full season. And they actually, what was that? I think it was a full season. I don't know if they all got well. They, exactly, they didn't air them all. Oh, maybe they eventually aired them, but in the original run, they did not air them. And they didn't air them in order, which, Correct. which made it confusing. Exactly. So anyway, we need to get back to this. But oh, yeah, let's do that. Firefly, great series, great movie, very good movie. I like that movie. Okay, let's get to this. <laughs> we got a comic to do. We got three comics to do, my friend. Three. Well, let's work one step at a time. So yeah, there are, it's actually a three-parter, and they're all written by Peter David and Bill Mummy. Yes. <laughs> all right. So the first one, issue number three, came out in October 1990, is entitled "The Return of the Worthy," Part One: Rude Awakening. And that's issue thirteen. Issue thirteen. What did I say? Cool. I think you said three, but I could be wrong. Issue Moving 13. along. Moving along. All right. So, writers uh, already mentioned. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker, Arnie Starr. Uh, letterer, P. Naha. Colorist, Tom McCraw. And editor is Robert Greenberger. So, we start off with the cover with the words, Danger, Danger, emblazoned on the cover. Uh, along with a picture of Kirk, McCoy, Spock, and two security men cowering behind a rock formation as a lightning bolt lashes at them. So we start off with an away team led by Captain Kirk on a volatile surface of a planet called Klinia 1. McCoy is complaining that this is a waste of time since the ship's sensors already scanned the area and determined that it was lifeless. Kirk states that even though there was no life, there was an indication of a high-energy reading. Surprisingly, the crew all start to pick up faint humanoid life signs nearby. As they approach the area where the life signs are coming from, they are attacked by an energy bolt. Once the smoke clears, and they see that the bolts are coming from a floating robot that is standing guard over a crashed ship. We are then treated with an ancient galactic legend, which talks about a band of explorers referred to as the Worthy. These extraordinary adventurers were lost within the depths of space over 400 years ago. So we go back to the story now. The robot continues to attack the crew, knocking all of them from their feet, and Spock takes a blast straight in the chest uh, when he jumps in front of a blast that was aimed at McCoy. As the robot is about to blast Kirk point-blank, McCoy is able to get to his phaser and shoots the robot, blowing him to pieces. The crew approach the ship, but notice a force field surrounding the craft. Kirk orders Scotty to beam down, and within no time, the miracle worker has the shields down and the crew is in the ship. Spock and Scotty notice that this is an ancient Caramean vessel. The Caramean are known to be the first race to explore the galaxy. So basically the first race to have warp drive. They find several stasis tubes uh, that still have some sleeping forms in them. You can see the faint outlines of two men, two women, and a small boy. 
McCoy is able to revive one of the males. Once awake, he introduces himself as Catalino, the leader of the Worthy. At first, the crew is suspicious of his claim, and then they are convinced that this man has been sleeping for 300 years and is indeed the basis of the legend of the Worthy. They agree to continue the tests on Catalano before waking the rest of the crew, or rest of his uh, sleeping people. So they all beam back up to the ship, and we have a brief scene where Kirk, Spock, Chekhov, Scotty, Ahura, and McCoy all marvel to themselves about what a find it is to meet up with the legendary worthy. So they're all a little bit of hero worship going on. Once the hero worship is finally over, Kirk is contacted by a very rude Admiral Tomlinson, who we we find out is actually an admiral now and no longer vice-admiral. So Tomlinson is very upset that Kirk has delayed declaring that the planet is truly lifeless and scoffs at Kirk's claims that he has found the worthy. Tomlinson tells him that he needs to hurry and then reminds him again that it's now Admiral Tomlinson. Later, in the room that has the large steering wheel from Star Trek V, R.J. Blaze impresses Catalino with her knowledge of ancient formal greetings from the Caramean homeworld. Catalano, is it Catalano or Catalino? I'm going to be flip-flopping. It doesn't matter. Flip-flop. <laughs> I think it's Catalano, but whatever. Yeah, I think so, too. My opinion. Catalano explains his mission. The worthy were the few chosen from their planet. They went out to explore the galaxy, and he refers to themselves as liberators and healers. Until they drew in the attention of an alien who claimed to be a god named Apollo. When they would not pay him homage, he teleported them across the galaxy and stranded them on Kalina 1. Once there, they were unable to create fuel to escape, and when they started running out of resources and various crew members died, then they decided to put themselves into stasis. The story is interrupted by McCoy, who asks the uh, crew to join him in sickbay. Worried, they barge into the medical ward to find the remaining survivors awake. Catalano introduces the crew to the rest of the worthy. His second in command is a woman named Aline. He were also introduced to a, a gentleman by the name of Engineer Kim. A psychic female named Inaj. Is that how you would pronounce it? Sure. Sure, Inaj. And then his young son, Art, who has the ability to absorb any information that he sees. Kirk and Blaze perform the ritual greetings, and the boy then demands to know where the robot is. And when McCoy explains that he had to destroy it, the boy becomes very enraged and actually throws Kirk across the room. Spock is able to subdue the child, and eventually he calms down and is offered a chance to work with Scotty in repairing the robot. Later, there is a reception in the gardens. There, Blaze explains the current situation on Carmilla. It seems that the planet is on the verge of a civil war and that there is a chance that the arrival of the Worthy will fulfill the prophecy that the Worthy would return when Chimera needs them the most. A short time later, Kirk and Catalano check on Arit. Arit is not working on the robot, but is absorbing all the information from the Enterprise's computers in a way very similar to Gary Mitchell, uh, how he did it in Where No Man Has Gone Before. 
Arat tells his father that Kirk is planning to destroy the planet as part of some test called the Lamver Unit. Kirk has Spock explain their mission. They are there to prove that the solar system was completely lifeless so that they can perform a test as part of a joint Klingon and Federation venture. The Lamver unit will create a slipstream that will allow a ship to travel to an alternate dimension. The process requires massive amounts of energy, which requires them to harness the power straight from a sun, which ultimately results in the sun being destroyed. Kirk is trying to prove that there's no life in the Kenia system so that they can perform the test. Catalano says that if they are going to destroy this planet, it will be over his dead body. To be continued. Da, da, da. Yeah, so... I'm getting a little bit of a Lost in Space vibe here. Definitely. No two ways about it. Um, however, you know there are differences... But uh, obviously, this comes from the pattern of Lost in Space. <clears throat> the characters did... really. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. No, please. No, I mean, there are definitely similarities. There's the young, precocious, uh, brilliant uh, son. There's the stalwart father. Um, uh, there's there's no uh, major. Oh, what was his name? West. Uh, West. There you go. Major West. There's no major West per se, but we have an engineer. And the original Worthy apparently were a, a, a larger number of people than we had in Lost in Space, although many of them have died off, apparently. But there are startling similarities, especially the robot. Yeah, the robot. Yeah, he doesn't look anything like a uh, robot did in Lost in Space. Right. But uh, he's just like a basically a floating head with little tiny arms. Well, yeah, and, and the thing, yeah, instead of having uh, tank tracks that he gets around on, he, he floats around, or maybe he's propelled around by these little, like, uh, like, like rocket kind of things that, that appear on the bottom of him. But he does have the robot's arms, though. Yeah, the little kaleidoscoping-looking tubes. Um, yeah, uh, accordion. Yeah, accordion, kind of. there you go. Uh, accordion kind of arms, and then ending in uh, kind of pincers. Yep, he does. Yeah, and so. his head is encased in a glass jar, which robots was as well. True, only uh, it, it it looks different. But but you're right that 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 is a similarity that they've redone in a different way. His right. face, his actual head, I, I don't know. He kind of looks like a humanoid robot head encased within clear uh, glass, plastic, whatever. Right, where robot in Lost in Space was just a couple of balls spinning around on a little <laughs> spindly thing, wasn't it? Or is well, that Robbie the robot? Uh, no, that's Lost in Space robot. Well, the Lost in Space robot had kind of like a, a flattened fishbowl kind of head. Yeah. So it was it was kind of like a, a flattened oval. But it, had, it, it had all kinds of lights middle, inside right? of it. Well, it had lots of lights inside of it, and like like a little mechanism thing and lights that would flash on and off. Uh, and then he had two little um, yellow and red uh, little things that kind of came out of his neck and came up. Right, right, right. Anyway, but uh, it's it's pretty cool. So you know they 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 have made it kind of like Lost in Space, but they purposely made some differences. Well, there's no Doctor Smith, and there's no I guess the mom Will. would be missing. Yeah, well, she died. Right, they do mention that next issue. Right. Because at uh, first I thought that the uh, Aline character was supposed to be the mom, but I guess right. she's supposed to be more of the Penny character. Or not Penny. Um, Penny was uh, Penny was one of the daughters. What was the other daughter? 
Judy. Judy. Oh no, that's Jetson. Well, no, no, I think you may be right. Oh really? So so there's the older daughter, which I think was Judy, and then the younger daughter was Penny. Oh okay. So it was like three three kids. Right. Uh but but yeah, so Eileen or whatever, uh with the short hair, uh who she's kind of a she's a little bit of a, a kiss butt. A kiss butt. A kiss butt. So everything that uh Catalano says, she's like, Oh yes, you're so right. Which is an interesting thing to remember as we're going through these early issues, because when we by the time we get to the third issue, a change occurs, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But right, which which maybe her comments here maybe a little sarcastic. Oh really? Oh okay. I don't know. I didn't I didn't take that. Uh, but maybe they are. Well, yeah, we'll talk about it in the third issue when it when because when in the first happen. two issues she's like always uh, like like pumping uh, Catalano up. Yeah, we owe him so much. Things like exactly, that. Exactly. All that kind of stuff. Uh, and he does he does definitely appear to be the uh, the Dr. Robinson, although he's not a doctor, as far as we know, Catalano. Uh, hero guy, you know, tall and leadership and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with um, the Lost in Space actors except for Bill Mummy right. and, you know, Guy Williams. Right. But uh, Guy Williams' real name is Catalano. Oh, really? Oh! Yeah, he, he was born Armando Joseph Catalano. Wow, that is a that is a way cool piece of information. But and I I'm pretty sure knowing that I kind of think that maybe the other names have something you know some sort of nod to the actors who played them, but I don't know that much about any of the other ones. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and of course, he also played Zorro. Uh, right, of course. So I guess him playing Zorro makes more of a play on his uh, lineage. Uh, apparently, he's. Uh, Hispanic in some way, in his lineage, with yeah. a name like Catalano. Cool. Very or cool. Spanish. That, that is very nice. That, that's a nice little piece of trivia. Um, I will say that, uh, since we're doing compare and contrast time with Lost in Space, the kid, Arit, I think that's right, yeah. um, he is like, like Will Robinson in a lot of ways, but in other ways, I really don't like him. He's 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 got an attitude, uh, precocious and uh, spoiled, and he wants what he wants, and he's pretty impatient about it when he doesn't get it. So, yeah, which I which I find funny. Why would why would Bill Mummy write a character that everybody's going to associate with him? Yep, as a spoiled little kid who throws around Captain Kirk. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And 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 the thing is, there's a few points in these upcoming stories where you know maybe there's a little glimpse of likability, a little a little glimpse of it. But no, ninety percent of the time he's he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> Even the little kid kind of looks like um, Will did in the uh, yeah in the old show. From yep. what I remember, I've only seen a handful of episodes. Yep. He's kind of got, kind of sort of got freckles, and uh, uh, he's got the big ears that kind of stick out. I guess I didn't mention what these guys look like. So the worthy are actually yellow-skinned aliens. Um, most of them have blue hair, with yep. the exception of um, the psychic uh, Inaj, and she has orange hair. Yeah. 
so she has a fiery red head. Yeah, orange, orange head. head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 colors of the hair are definitely comic book over the top. Right, and, and they don't have eyebrows; they have just eye ridges type things. So. Right, and their ears are kind of a weird, kind of squarish kind of shape, or yeah, diamond shape. The boys. Diamond. They're kind of diamond shaped because of the way they're oriented. Right. Yeah, the, the the boys is the worst because he he has he has particularly uh, broad ears that stick he away has, from He his has head. not grown into his ears yet. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, and uh, it's kind of implied. Not so much here, but later that uh, engineer uh, Kim and the psychic Inaj right. are a couple. Yes, they're very much an item. Although it's funny what she does uh, later. Yeah, I wouldn't say very much, but it's implied that they are. Well, right. Okay. Well, in this issue. Right, right. We find out more later. Yep. So uh, there were several... Wrath of Khan and Space Seed type references in this book. I mean, they're on a planet trying to prove that it's lifeless, just like uh, Chekhov did in Wrath of Khan. Right. And they find sleeping people that they then wake up and and actually McCoy even makes a comment that you know, <laughs> hey, you remember last time when we did something like this? And, <laughs> when and woke people up in a, sleeper sh- in a sleeper ship, right? <laughs> so I just thought it was funny that they uh, they had a reference or at least a, a similar storyline to those two episodes. Right. Yep. And speaking of another reference to another episode. Yeah. Apollo. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. So they had to bring somebody here into the into the story that would cause the worthy enough trouble that that they number one be able to um, take them far away uh, from where they should be, so they're mm-hmm. like out of the picture for a while and nobody finds them. And also, and by the way, they don't have warp drive. Three hundred years ago. Yeah, I was going to mention that because they they get around a lot, but uh, they, they yeah, I mean they do get around a lot, but they don't have warp drive until Scotty well, shows. Oh, spoiler, dude. Well, I don't. What kind of okay? So, anyway, so we're, okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway, later so, Scotty so, will show him warp drive, and, exactly. and they imply well, how that how much they of don't spoiler, have spoiler it. is that? Well, well, uh, why is he so excited if he doesn't have if they have warp drive? Anyway, I so, agree. It doesn't make sense. Okay, but they did get around a lot, and the thing is, if you don't have warp drive, unless you're using those sple- those sleeper pods a lot between star systems, you're not going to see much. And these guys have seen a lot. So you think that's what they did? They used those sleeping pods to go from place to place? Uh, the fact that they don't have warp drive, or they don't appear to have warp drive anywhere, makes more sense why they would have sleeper pods. But still, um, you know, ten year, you know, ten years between adventures, you know, as you're as you're moving around. I mean, who knows? Maybe that that is the way it worked out. Right, but I mean, they've only been gone four hundred years, and. It didn't quite well, say how long they've been trapped well, on that planet, but... Well, yeah, and they didn't exactly say when they started their adventures either, I don't think. I mean, they talked about how long they were trapped on the planet, but how many years ago did the uh, were these adventures begin? I, I don't know that they said that. Uh, I thought they said they left their planet 400 years ago. Okay, so do the math. So they've been going around 100 years having adventures? And then they got lost? Maybe. 
Okay, so that, I mean, a hundred years. I mean, if you've got like uh, like five years, ten years with sublight drive getting between star systems, I don't know. Maybe right. it works. Maybe it makes sense. Well, you can only go to ten to twenty places. Well, yeah. Yep. Do the division. Uh, I don't think that would be enough to make them as legendary on all these other planets like they are. Uh, you're probably right, but I'm you know as you said in as, as in the last issue. Or as in a previous uh, episode, uh, where you and Brian said you're working trying to make things fit. <laughs> that's what you guys do. Well, I'm doing a little bit of it too. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think about all the hero worship? You know, we had two. Was it two pages or one pages where everybody's just, oh, I hope they, I hope they'll be our best friends. I mean, just like, it's <laughs> like. And and Ahura even says the word. Her she closes her little personal log. I hope they like me. Yep, that's true. What the heck? That's then, so out of character for her. And then uh, it, it turns out that that Chekhov is a big fan. There's this gorgeous redhead in the crew who seems perfectly taken with uh, Castellano, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, you're right. Everybody's like, ooh. Uh, I I think they might have taken it a little bit too long. But, well, whatever. They got the point across. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was weird. I'm like, okay, I get it. I don't know. I mean, it would be like, what, us finding Christopher Columbus or something? <laughs> that, you know, would well, that many people be... Well, I, I think these guys sound like a bigger deal than Christopher Columbus. Yeah. Especially with revisionist history. I, I, I can't think of a modern day... Well, who, uh, what, uh... Marco Polo? Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm thinking more like in in, uh, in Grecian days. Who who was not Peter the Great, but uh, that's Russian. But um, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, who basically turned took over the known world. Now, mind you, he took over the known world, but still, I mean, that was a very impressive person, even though you Wasn't know he, he was kind chopping of a everybody. Well, actually, that is what was so cool about him is he took over a lot of uh, the, the, the countries he took over, not by military force, but by uh, basically, um, you know, cutting them in on the piece of the action, making it so they'd want to join his, uh, his burgeoning uh, empire. Now, I'm not going to say that, that he never, uh, you know, took over somebody by force, but a lot of the, supposedly, I've, I've read... Uh, a lot of the things he took over, he took over uh, not through violence. But, I mean, but there's somebody who's impressive that if someday you saw this person, that would be, I, I, I would be kind of impressed. But, huh. or, or or maybe uh, maybe Lincoln or George Washington or something like that. Who knows? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Anyways, I thought it was a little, little much. Yeah. Uh, different topic. The Worthy's Ship. Which to me looked a bit reminiscent of a big Starfleet shuttle. So it seems to have two nacelles on the bottom. It has a general shape, although rounded, that's rather like a shuttlecraft, uh, an original start, uh, the original series shuttlecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot. It's bigger, B- uh, but apparently big enough that it can fit. As we find out later. It can fit in the uh, Enterprise uh, shuttle bay. Right. I thought it kind of looked like a flying saucer a little bit, and within 
flying the saucer. Frame. I mean, it was kind of round all the way around, it. or maybe football shaped. So I thought maybe they were trying well, to go for a what, Saturn V or whatever, Saturn II, the the Lost in Spaceship. So kind of doing a hybrid oh, really? of a shuttle and a and the Saturn II. It's the Jupiter II. Jupiter um, II. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, from the right angle, I guess you know. Look, I guess you could be right. So what they've what they've really got is basically it looks like a top, a spinning top. So it's round from that standpoint. But then around it, around, over the top and down the sides, it's got basically flat sides to it that are angled, flares out towards the bottom, and at the bottom is where, they, where they've got the nacelles. Right. So you're right. I mean, from certain angles... From the front, you're right, it does look like the Jupiter 2 with this extra stuff on it. From the side, at least to me, it looked like a uh, a Starfleet shuttlecraft. Right, so it's like the pairing of the two. Exactly. How interesting. Kind of like the the Worthy in general, I think. Kind of a melange, a com- combination of somewhere in between Star Trek and Lost in Space. Exactly. Because definitely in Lost in Space... I mean, yeah, you know, they help people once in a while, but they weren't like crusading freedom fighters or something. Uh, you know, for the most part, they were trying to just, you know, make enough fuel to, uh, you know, get off the current planet they were on. Right, and then if they just happened to help people, they, they would. Right. Where these guys, Worthy, seem to be uh, heading all over the place and saving civilizations from doom and... Uh, blah blah blah. A little yep. bit more like uh, like the Enterprise crew. It does seem that way. So it does. <laughs> okay, so let's see what else. The Lamvir unit, which oh, yeah. they were were supposed to fire off and unfortunately destroy the uh, the planet. A couple things. Number one, it sounds a little bit. It, it, they're talking about the idea that this would be like a folding space kind of engine, which right. reminded me of Event Horizon. Uh, the movie Event Horizon, which really, that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) And then the idea that that, that this this space-folding engine, this Lamvir unit they're using, is something that sounds like you need to destroy a uh, a planet or maybe even a whole solar system to make work, Uh, and you're doing this with the Klingons? I mean, none of this sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah, no, it would be crazy yeah although instantaneous travel does have a uh, it does sound kind of good but other than that it, this just doesn't sound like a good idea yeah it says that while they're destroying the the sun yeah. it would also it says anything of any mass whatsoever would be pulled in so i guess while they're absorbing the energy of the sun all the other planets would get pulled in as well and destroy them wow this is, the, this is uh, it's a comic book, be, and they're making yeah. things up. But yeah, the object would be warped and eventually destroyed. Oh boy! Okay. No, it, it, yeah, that's silly that they would destroy a whole solar system to test this 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 thing. And why would they be working with the Klingons? Doesn't make sense. No. Even though they're supposedly trying to court their favor, as we'll find out later, according to a special guest star villain, which we'll see in the next issue. I, I it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But, no, it's 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 
Yeah, and the whole idea that you... I mean, how many times have they gone to alternate universes and back, and they've never had to destroy a whole solar system for that before? Do it, yeah. My last comment is, I thought it was very interesting when I read the letters section of this issue Mm -hmm. that uh, talked about the change in the direction of Star Trek VI. Oh, yeah. Where they were basically... So this this must have been happening in the same time period, because this was like big news in the letters section. Where they were saying uh, originally it was supposed to be Kirk and Spock go to the uh, Academy days, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where they changed it to being what it was going to be, and then basically, I guess the Academy story just sat on the shelf until Star Trek Eleven. Yep, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, we've talked about it before. I remember I was really upset when I thought that they were going to do a uh, Academy days uh, uh, movie when all this was going on. Yeah, I I don't re- I remember you mentioning things about um them having the idea before. I don't remember the idea that it was a uh, part of Star Trek 6. Oh. Uh, the part of the original plan for Star Trek 6. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, and they also came out with a uh it was about the same time they came out with a novel called Star Trek the Lost Years. Right. And and the you know the you know the little advertisements for that also kind of had like a little thing, you know, and, and Look forward to Star Trek Six, where we, you know, Kirk goes to the Academy kind of thing, and and I remember reading it, going, "No, that's so stupid." <laughs> Shatner's too old to go to the Academy, and then I found out that they were going to recast Kirk, and I'm like, "No, you can't do that." Uh-huh. <laughs> we're going to keep the old guy around for one more go around. <laughs> well, actually, one and a half more go arounds. True. Uh, another thing they mentioned in the letter section was the New York City Opera was going to do a version of Star Trek? Star Trek the Opera, that's right. <laughs> did that happen? It did not. It, it, okay. got, a, it got officially nixed uh, early 1991. So, okay, okay. Yeah, for about half a year, it was it was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that would be, like, funny. That, that sounds almost as, as awkward and a bad idea as a Spider-Man opera. I, I do. I kind of want to go see that. Oh, of course, that that is not an opera on Broadway. I, I guess it's uh, what the U two guys did the music. Yeah. So maybe that's, that's better. Bonner. But you know, yeah, Bono and Edge. Um, right. Yeah, it's a musical. I, I I guess. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see an opera because the operas are usually sang in uh, Italian, right? I mean, I know there <laughs> I know there is English English operas, ones, yes. But, well, maybe they do it in Klingon. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it is Star Trek. And they do like to sing in Klingon. Oh, and they the, the Klingons do. Klingons yeah. love opera. It's right? They, they, and they, Shakespeare. They... Oh, it's right. Fun. It's true. funny how the Klingons are so cultured. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still brutes. Anyway, that's all I have to say about this issue. All right. Uh, I'm done as well. Excellent. Moving on to number 14. Please. Which is titled The Return of the Worthy, Part 2, Great Expectations. This one was published in December of uh, 1990. Same people on the creative team, so I will not repeat them. The cover shows a golden-colored holograph of the worthy gathered together in an idealized family portrait pose. It is being projected above a large gathering of Starfleet personnel in a large room. 
Spock and McCoy are looking at it, and Kirk is looking at Spock with love. I, I, I mean, uh, warm approval of the image in his eyes. Text to the right of the Worthy's image says, In Memory of the Worthy. Our story opens on the USS Exeter, where Captain Stiles is making a log entry summarizing the probable resolution to troubles on the planet Kristen, brought about by the introduction of Starfleet agricultural technology to be applied to the problem. The captain receives an incoming call from the devious Admiral Tomlinson. Tomlinson directs Stiles to set course for the site of the Lamvere unit tests to see what is taking Kirk so long to confirm test site implementation. Stiles takes the assignment. On the planet, Kirk, Spock, and most of the surviving Worthy are at the gravesite of the fallen members of the Worthy. Catalano insists the planet cannot be destroyed with these heroes set to rest here. He also quite unreasonably insists they cannot be relocated. After a long silence, Kirk unwisely pledges that Starfleet will find another location for the Lamvere unit. Testing and their resting place will not be harmed. Inaj, the psychic member of the Worthy, warns that something is wrong on the Enterprise. They beam back to the ship to find that Arit has thrown another temper tantrum and started destroying a computer terminal out of frustration. He says it's too slow giving him information that is delaying his efforts to rebuild their decrepit, pathetic robot. The overly emotional young'un settles down and apologizes. In engineering, Mr. Scott is working with the Worthy's engineer, Gim. I'm just going to call him Gim, even though it might be Jim. I'm going to call him Gim who comes up to speed on modern warp technology at an astounding pace. Mr. Scott also volunteers to help Gim adapt his tech to the Worthy's own ship design. Mr. Chekhov is working with the lovely Anage, exposing her to the modern music scene, of which the Enterprise carries a broad selection in its memory banks. On the bridge, Kirk asks Ohura to contact Karamia and tell them the Worthy will be returning home soon. Catalano seems okay with his apparent destiny to bring peace and prosperity back to Karamia. Kirk also asks Ahura to send a message to Admiral Tomlinson, telling him that they will have to find an alternate location to test the Lamvere unit. Spock conjectures that Tomlinson will not be happy about this news. Kirk says he can live with that, or so he thinks. They proceed at warp 6 to Karamia. Meanwhile, a mystery ship that looks vaguely Klingon states that the Enterprise has left for Karamia rather than testing the Lamvere unit. The mystery commander orders an intercept course and states how ironic that it is the Enterprise that should be the target of his mission. Chekhov is in his quarters with the shapely Inage, who is checking out his red square miniature and Russian teddy bear. He shows Inage his collection of research on the worthy. Chekhov was apparently quite a fan in his younger days. Somehow they move to Chekhov's bed, where he shows her a book about the worthy from Altair that features a depiction of Inage. 
His particular fascination with Anaj, over and above the other members of the Worthy crew, is obvious and leads him to a hot, steamy kiss. Go, go, Mr. Chekhov. Sulu and Kirk are not the only shipboard studs. Speaking of shipboard romances, Catalano is called upon to tell some of the Worthy's most interesting stories in an impromptu forum on the ship's lounge. Many of the crew were there to hear how the Worthy dealt with the terrorist named Blackheart, the Kieran awakening to peaceful ways of life and more. His charisma not only captures the rapt attention of those in attendance, but in particular a lovely redhead female member of the Enterprise crew. Scotty breaks out a bottle of something blue that is purported to be able to fuel the warp nacelles. Gim is more than happy to partake in the beverage. Gim claims he will be able to convert the worthy ship that is currently in the Enterprise shuttle bay over to warp drive in a few days. Scotty scoffs and says that job will take more than six months. Gim is miffed at Mr. Scott's questioning of his abilities. Scotty responds saying he must have better things to do than just work on warp conversion. Gim says, ah, it's okay because Inaj is totally devoted to him. Meanwhile, in Chekhov's quarters, he and Anaj are having a major suckface session, and apparently both are enjoying it thoroughly. Suddenly, Chekhov withdraws and says this is not proper behavior for a Starfleet officer. Inaj playfully protests and says, of course it is. Where do you think all the little Starfleet officers come from? Chekhov says this is not fair to Gim. In a very adult way, Inaj takes Chekhov's rejection and leaves. Chekhov sighs heavily as he stares at the recently closed door to his quarters. Meanwhile, on the Exeter, Captain Stiles receives a call from Tomlinson, telling him that Kirk has gone off to Karamea on some damned fool side trip. Stiles very positively proposes that maybe Kirk is trying to head off the civil war or the civil unrest going on on that planet. Tomlinson says he does not care what Kirk is up to. He wants the test to happen now. He orders Stiles to intercept Kirk and take the Lamvir unit and conduct the tests Kirk was assigned to. He goads Stiles by reminding him that he could not even get out of dry dock the last time he was ordered to catch up with Kirk. Kirk assigns Spock to help keep the misbehaving Arit occupied, so Spock teaches him to play three-dimensional chess. Though Arit is distracted during the training and the subsequent gameplay, Arit ends up checkmating Spock as he runs out of the door, supposedly with the answer to what will let him fix his precious robot. On the bridge, Uhura tells Kirk they have not received a response from Karamea. Kirk says that is a cause for concern. She goes on to say that Starfleet sent a message ordering them to rendezvous with the Exeter at Starbase 124. Kirk instructs Uhura to send a reply saying the serious situation on Karamea seems to require their immediate attention and that they will meet the Exeter as soon as possible. Sulu interrupts saying the shields just came up and Chekhov says they have Wessel is approaching and will intercept them. The incoming ship fires on them. Kirk sounds the red alert. 
The lovely red-headed crew woman tells Catalano the sirens are a red alert. They are under attack. Catalano makes his way to the bridge. On the bridge, Spock identifies the attacking ship as a Gorn ship. A hail comes in, and a brown-skinned reptilian Gorn, in all its aggressive glory, is displayed on the big view screen. Kirk asks, asks the meaning of the attack, and the Gorn says Kirk is as ugly as he remembered. The Gorn, named Commander Raska, states the Gorn displeasure with the Federation's development of the Lamvir unit, which they stated in Federation General Assembly to no avail. He says the Enterprise is now in Gorn space and as such subject to Gorn law. After a few more rounds of pointless threats, Kirk orders a barrage of photon torpedoes and phasers. The superior firepower of the refitted Enterprise brings down the Gorn ship's shields. One more shot and they will be done for. During the pause in the action, Chekhov states they are not in Lath, a.k.a. Gorn, space. Despite their imminent defeat, the Gorn demands Kirk turn over the Lamvir unit. Just then, Catalano enters the bridge. Kirk tells them the Gorn, tells the Gorn they are in no position to demand anything. Catalano says the worthy encountered the Gorn uh, over 300 years ago and saved some of their people from the bug beasts of Troll. Catalano addresses Commander Rasca and states he is of the worthy. The Gorn says he must be kidding. At the end, Catalano gives the Gorn a graceful way to withdraw as a favor to the worthy, and he takes it. Catalano leaves the bridge, thinking he saved the ship. Kirk and Spock discuss what happened and how Catalano only gave Rasca a face-saving way to withdraw. Yet the worthy are under the misimpression that they saved the day. Kirk says to not spoil the worthy's triumph, as it would do no harm. He does comment that the worthies seem to be getting mighty full of themselves. In sickbay, McCoy is again confronted with the worthy's robot, back from the junkyard dead. McCoy calls for help and cowers a bit when that kind of scary kid, Arich, shows up to tell the doctor everything is okay since he repaired all the damage McCoy did. Man, that kid's annoying. Chekhov comes with a security man in response to McCoy's call for help. McCoy tells him everything is okay, and Aritz says they came by to let Dr. McCoy know that there was no hard feelings. McCoy even begrudgingly shakes the robot's claw as the official start of a beautiful relationship. Chekhov takes Aritz to the ship's firing range to show him how to fire a phaser. I have a bad feeling about this. As the Enterprise approaches Karamea, they call the worthy to the bridge. Still no response from their hails. Even Anaj is not picking up anything, telepathically from the surface. Something is definitely wrong. Spock's preliminary scans pick up no life forms in what should be the most populated areas of the planet. He does pick up elevated radiation readings, though. Kirk states that they are too late. To be continued. So the adventure continues, and unfortunately, one of the most important missions of the Worthy 
they appear to be late for. Don't you hate when that happens? I hate that. You're prophesized to do something great, and then when you get around to doing it, eh, it's already been done. Too late. Too late. Too late. Can't do it. You can't do it, man. Yeah. Nah, I, I kind of like that. I kind of liked, uh, I mean, it would have been kind of cheesy if it was a pat ending. Right. Plus, this gives you more interesting stuff going on. Rather than just, hey, we're here, great. Then, then really, instead of being a three-parter, this could have been a two-parter. Right. But this definitely throws a new spanner in the works and gives the worthy their greatest challenge. Yeah, and it's a little sad. It is sad. As we'll see in the next issue there. Well, actually, you won't see unless you buy that comic. But there are some particularly gruesome drawings in there showing the horrors of, the, of that planet basically killing itself. Right. Right, which we'll get into in a little bit. Right. Hey, when you were doing the synopsis, I noticed, uh, which I didn't notice when I was reading it, the the Worthy's hands. Oh, their, what, uh, the nails? Their fingernails are just like little yeah. claws that point straight out of their uh, the middle of their finger. I, yeah, I noticed that. It, it almost actually almost looks like little doll rods that come out. Right, they're, they're not really claws because they look like they, they're perfectly cylindrical. Exactly. Yeah, it, it looks like, like they have wooden hands, and somebody drilled a hole in the points of them, and they stuck little short doll rods in them. <laughs> Very odd. It is weird. But, you know, trying to make them a little bit more alien, a little less human. Which, yeah. once you get past the hair and the skin color and the pegs instead of nails, they look pretty much human. Yeah, well, they got pointed ears, or... Oh, yeah, weird. ears. Yeah, something. you're right. They got weird ears. They got like diamond-shaped ears, kind of, sort of. Yeah. Something's going on with those ears. Right. So, in a lot of ways, they're, they're, they're rather human-like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I... Yeah, I like this issue. I thought it was pretty good. Me too. It was interesting seeing Captain Styles again. Again, uh, a character that we've seen in the past. He looked a little different, though, didn't you think? He did. He did not look like James uh, Sicking at all. Well, no, actually, he did in some ways. So James uh, Sicking, and I'm probably not pronouncing his name right, but he's the Hill Street Blues actor who who played Captain Styles in Star Trek Three. This, the drawing of him, he's got thicker hair, and he's got uh, kind of blonde hair, light-colored hair. Yeah, you know who who he looked like to me. He looked like Dr. Smith from uh, Oh, Lost really? Space. Really? You th- oh, I gotta look at that again with that. Yeah, uh, look at him. Especially when he's first introduced in the um, page. William. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, not, William. Not the remake, Dr. Styles, or Dr. Smith, but the... Uh, oh, the original one. The original one. Uh, where is that? Oh, yeah, the very first page, page one. That... Uh, Frame uh, on the top right-hand corner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I dig you. I dig you. So at first I thought this was, oh, I was like, this is a new guy, and this is how they're going to bring in um, Dr. Smith, because there was no Dr. Smith on the ship. And then it's Captain Styles without the mustache, and I'm like, okay, that's weird. Yeah, and uh, he, he, he doesn't have a huge nose. But he has a new, uh, a good size nose like the uh, original actor from Star Trek Three. But now that you mention it, Doctor Smith had a pretty pronounced nose too. 
So I yeah, definitely okay. see where uh, he looks a little bit like him. Mm-hmm. Good point. And he's just as cowardly. Well, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, okay, so, and that's something, I think that's a comment I have for the next issue, so I'm going to save it. But he, well, I'll save it for the next issue. Okay. What else? Uh, yeah. About Captain Styles. I was, okay, and, and you'll probably quote the exact uh, first time we saw this that it's happened already, but I don't remember in the Taz universe where the shields would come up automatically. I mean, it makes no, perfect... it was just in the comic books. Okay. We had a because... comic book where it did it before. Oh, well, I don't remember that, but I definitely didn't remember it in any of the TV shows or the, uh, or the, uh, the other things. Now, maybe Next Gen did something like that, maybe. But, I mean, it makes perfect sense that it would. I mean, you got sensors, right? You got shields, right? You got computers, you know, sophisticated computers that could take the sensor input, and if something comes in fast, you know, put the shields up. But um, this is the first time, at least, I remember coming into contact with it. So right. it happened before, huh? Yeah, it was in uh, Star Trek number seven. Good lord, do you remember the issue? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was volume volume one, issue number seven. I believe page twelve, actually. Yes. Now the page only 12. reason I remember. The only That's reason I remember it, it was because uh, it was the issue where Savick stole that ship. Oh yeah, and she she ran up towards the Enterprise. Right, and and they said the the engine or they said the uh, shields came up automatically. Right, and if they didn't, they could have been blown up or whatever. Exactly, and and right. you and I joked around about how that was mighty convenient. <laughs> right, I mean it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, oh, it makes sense. I'd be digging on that. Uh, Okay, so very cool seeing a Gorn. Well, was it a Gorn? Well, they called him a Gorn. Although it was not... Sometimes, and then sometimes they called him... A uh, Lathe. Or Lathe, yeah, Lathe. Lathe. So it was like, well, okay, so first off, Kirk and this this captain, uh, this Gorn captain, or commander, they know each other. Right. So it's like... Either they're just making stuff up, and they're just saying, oh, yeah, they know each other from the past. Or there's actually been a comic book at some point, that at least I haven't seen, that uh, th- that they did come into contact with each other. And this is the first brown Gorn I've seen before. I mean, I'm, I'm just used to the TV series yeah, Gorn, and, not only does and he, he was have, green. Not only does it have brown hair, but it also – or not only is it brown skin, but it has hair. Yeah, yeah, but, you know. Styles has hair too, so I was like, whatever. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I ha- I had a hard time with that too because I was like, what is this? And what's the you keep using lathe and corn gorn? Yeah, yeah. right. Interchangeably. So, yeah, so I looked it up on Memory Beta and Memory Alpha, and there's right. there was no mention of of Kirk meeting up with a whatever his name was, the captain's name. Yeah, Sykes and, or whatever. Uh, no, not not no the gorn Commander. captain. Yeah. Or R- Raska? Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. And so I looked at the letters page for a future uh, issue mm-hmm. that was going to talk about uh, issue number 14. Mm-hmm. And in it, Robert Greenberger, who's the editor, uh, wrote this, and I'll just read it real quick. It says, a couple of corrections did not get made. After the issue was drawn and colored, Roddenberry declared that we were misusing the Gorn and insisted that we removed removed it in favor of some other race. 
we quickly added the hair and changed the color in hopes that uh, people would buy the change. So they went back and were trying to replace all the word Gorn with Lathe. Lathe? Oh, God. Yeah, but they missed five. They missed five. <laughs> well, they, I, I, I think they called him Gorn more often than they called him Lathe. I think so, too. So, yeah, so there was five wow. times where they actually still had the word Gorn in there. Yeah. But, uh, and so I'm assuming that that, that captain <clears throat> was supposed to be the one in the arena where Kurt saves him. No. Really? I guess. That's the only time what? he's ever met up with the Gorn. Uh, well, apparently, if you looked it up. But that's pretty weak, because it doesn't... Well, whatever. Okay, so now we know the history. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm glad you kept calling them the Gorn, because that's, that's obviously what they are. Right. But I guess according to Roddenberry, they are, they are Lathe, not Gorn. <sighs> whatever. Well, how are they misusing the Gorn? I don't know, because hmm. the only time we'd ever seen them was the, in, in the arena episode. Yeah, but I remember... I don't remember exactly where, but I seem to recall... The Gorn being mentioned at at some future point, where they actually became part of the Federation. Yeah, um, I think so too. I think it was a throwaway line at some point. Right. Yeah, I don't remember actually seeing them, but I remember them being mentioned as as being you know underscoring how enemies become friends over time if you're really cool guys like the Federation folks are. Yeah. So so after this issue, and obviously after uh, Roddenberry's death. Uh, DC Comics put out a um, a Gorn. It was a graphic novel, a hardback graphic novel called "The Gorn Crisis," oh. uh, which was based in the uh, Dominion War timeframe. So it had huh. Picard trying to get the Gorn to come into the war on on the Federation side. Right. And and the only other time I remember Gorn being in the comic books is there was a uh, IDW did an Alien Spotlight issue. Where they did a Gorn story, and the it was based like right before Star Trek Two, because it had a I forgot the captain's name, Chekhov's captain at the beginning of uh, Rathacon. Uh, what is his name? Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. Right. It, yeah, it had him, and he he ends up crash landing on a planet, and and the Gorn are there too, and it's actually a pretty good story. You should you should read it. Uh, IDW. Alien Spotlight Gorn. Right. So, anyways, those are the o- those are the only other mentions of Gorn I know of in, in comic book land. No. Oh. Except for this one. There you go. Too bad, because I... Even though the, the costume was really cheesy in the original uh, show, you know, if you did them right, they're kind of interesting characters. Or I thought be. they were. I thought they were pretty cool in that episode of Enterprise, where they CG'd them. Oh, they did? Oh, I, I don't remember that one. It was in the Mirror Darkly episode where... Um, oh, really? They had a, a CG uh, Gorn in there? Yeah. Oh. Mirror Archer fights the Gorn. Oh, I gotta I gotta watch that again. I keep on, Every time you mention something from that episode, I say I gotta watch that again. There was a lot of good stuff in that episode. Yeah. That was kind of like their grab bag, because they were like, we're in another universe, so we can do anything because we don't have to worry about it tying in with Federation not knowing who the Gorn was, so just like, let's do it all. (laughs) Cool. So uh, I saw that, uh, or I heard, not saw, that your line about Scotty's It's Blue. (laughs) Yes. Which was obviously 
a, a take off of Data's line, It's Green, from the Next Generation episode Relics. Uh-huh. Which was a take off of Scotty's line, It's Green, from the original series by any other name. Cool. I knew I had heard it before. I didn't know the exact uh, reference, though. Yeah. Where they look at the liquor. What's uh-huh. this? It's blue. <laughs> or it's green. Exactly. Sounds good. Let's have some. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scotty would say that, of course. Of course, naturally. And looks like, uh, like, 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 Jim. Jim. I'm gonna call him Jim. Yeah, I could. I, I think that's the way you're supposed to pronounce it. Yeah, probably. It's it's G I M. G I M is is. I was trying to give it a more alien name. Right. Um, but he seems like the kind of guy who's up for a drink. Well, yeah, especially the next issue. Yeah, exactly, as we'll see. He might be up for more than one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, this little picture book that uh, that Chekhov has of the uh, of the the worthy, uh huh, the the girl in the uh, tight fitting alien suit or spacesuit, spacesuit with the glass helmet on, and and having some kind of kind of ray gun that she's using against some threat. Very lost in spacious. He says that that's a book from Altier, Altier except it's, right. it's written in English. <laughs> Maybe it's been translated. <laughs> Come on, don't ruin it. And it's what it's what's it called? Space cases or space babes? Space cases. <laughs> no, it wasn't space babes, was it? Ah, uh, you might be. It, right. was... it might be space cases. Uh, oh, I I don't remember saying. Or am anything. I thinking of that but... TV show? The TV show that. Peter David and him wrote was called Space Cases. What was the name of this thing? It's it's Starbase. Starbase. Starbase, Starbase that's, Stories. That's right. So when I first looked at it, especially with her kind of like uh, like leaning backwards and uh, you know laser out and stuff, I thought it was like Star Babes Stories or something. Oh yes. oh no, it's Base. <laughs> Sorry. That's what I thought too. And uh, and she is a babe, and uh, Chekhov gets a little. Uh, it's a little kiss face action. How nice for him. Yeah, but he does the right thing and, and cools it off. He does do the right thing. But I must say, uh, she's pretty open to things. Yeah, she's definitely not uh, not uh, Jim's woman, as, as we were led to believe in the first issue. Well, um, however, as we find out in the end of the next issue... Maybe she was, even though uh, she's just uh, okay with experimentation. I don't know. Uh, well, he is an alien. To her, <laughs> she's an alien. <laughs> exactly. You know, maybe she'll you know, get a little strange, you know? What the heck? Well, wait, well, uh, no, never mind. <laughs> okay. What else you got? That's all I got. Okay. Oh, uh, wait. Back what? to Captain Styles. Okay. When when did he have an Exeter Constitution class ship? Wonder why he doesn't still have the uh, the Excelsior. I don't know. But but that must have been a part of a conscious decision because they could have had the Excelsior as, as easy as anything else I would think. But Yeah. Unless maybe in, you know, cuz like I said in, in Star Trek Volume 1, um, yeah. Admiral Kirk does command the Excelsior for a while, so I wonder if something happens to it and I don't remember. I don't know. Or maybe this is all part of his disgrace 
for becoming um, dry dock styles. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Right. It, All right. Anything else? No. Did I cut you off? I'm sorry. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, issue number 15, The Return of the Worthy, Part 3, Tomorrow Never Knows. Sounds like a James Bond movie. It does, right? Uh, and this came out January 1991. So, like I said, they skipped December or November for some reason. Credits are all the same. And so we start off with the cover, which shows the five worthy on a post-apocalyptic cityscape. And they're looking around at the destruction in horror while a Federation shuttlecraft is slowly pulling away from the surface back to the heavens. And the, the words on the cover are, End of the Worthy. So the story starts off with, uh, on board the Enterprise, the Worthy are going through denial about the loss of their planet. Catalano demands that they be taken to the planet for a visual inspection. He feels that the sensors might be getting false readings as a defensive tactic. Kirk agrees to take the shuttle down, since the radiation is too bad for um, beaming, despite Kirk, uh, Spock's objections. The shuttle cruises over the surface. Dead bodies are strewn around with the buildings falling apart. There's no evidence of any type of vegetation or any life. The only visible movement is the flickering of a light in the distance. As they approach, they see that the light is part of a monument with an eternal flame on the top. All to honor the worthy. Seeing this, they demand a return to the ship. Aboard the USS Exeter, Captain Stiles is going over his current assignment to intercept Kirk and take control over the Lamver unit. He is conflicted about his assignment. On one hand, he is grateful to knock Kirk down a peg after the disgrace that he had since the uh, Excelsior incident in Star Trek III. On the other hand, he still respects Kirk and hates to see him treated in this fashion. He is interrupted from his captain's log by an urgent communication from Starfleet Command, and he heads to the bridge with his riding whip in hand. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk is performing a memorial for Kamira. Catalino starts to say a few words, but Elin chews him out for being all talk. This ends the memorial, and Catalino leaves the chambers. Spock is playing chess with a very distracted and apathetic Arit. Arit makes several bad moves and loses. He says, who cares, and walks away, leaving Spock and Robot to, com to comment illogical. Engineer... Jim, or Gim, however you want to pronounce it, is equally apathetic while working on their ship, even going so far as throwing a wrench at Scotty before storming off. When Scotty tries to follow Jim, he meets up with Chekhov, who's returning from the gym. G-Y-M. There's a few Gim, Jim, Jim, Gim, whatever you want to call them, jokes, until Chekhov arrives at his quarters and finds Inja. She is sitting in a chair with tears streaming from her eyes, and she simply says, Pavel, I need you. So finally we cut to Catalino, who is with Sulu and Ohora. Ohora gets Catalano to open up and start to tell one of his stories. Aline breaks in, and, or she breaks into his story, contradicting his viewpoints and painting the whole situation in a very bad light. Uh, the worthy were always lost and only happened upon planets that they visited by chance. 
and Catalina was a coward, and he put the rest of the crew in dangerous assignments. Uh, this goes on for a while until they both storm out. Scotty eventually finds Jim, who was incredibly drunk. Scotty is able to remind Jim that there is more to live for than just a ship, and he is referring to Inja, or Inaj, however we're pronouncing it. <laughs> on the bridge, Ahura informs Kirk that the Exeter is attempting contact. Kirk orders it on screen, and he starts to have a chat with Styles. So we come back to Chekhov's quarters. In- Inaj is throwing herself on the poor Russian. Chekhov is able to calm her down somewhat and suggests that they need to go speak with Jim. As they leave the room in search of him, he happens to come across them and assumes the worst, seeing them both coming out of his room. Jim pushes Chekhov out of the way, which causes Chekhov to cut his head, and he actually loses consciousness uh, just after he's able to contact security. When the security arrives with Kirk, Chekhov tells them that it was just some sort of misunderstanding and that everything is okay. Jealousy still flows hot in Jim, and he starts to attack Chekhov again. Kirk puts an end to it and demands that all of the worthy gather in the atrium. Or Arboretum, or whatever it is. It's a place we've never seen in the actual movies. So Kirk has a long speech about how life needs to keep going. However, his speech is cut short by Spock's notification that the Exeter has caught up with them. Kirk and the Worthy arrive on the bridge and find Stiles already there with his whip in hand. The Worthy accuse Starfleet of not helping Chimera. The Starfleet crew explains about the Prime Directive and how they are forbidden to interfere with the events on a planet. The Worthy are also informed that there are other known planets in the same situation and the Federation is still unable to help them. With this news, the Worthy excuse themselves to discuss their next steps in private. Once alone, Kirk and Stiles admit that they already knew that the Lamver unit was being scrapped and that this whole thing was a ploy to get the Worthy uh, active into something. The Worthy then return and state that they will travel the galaxy on their own and visit these worlds that the Federation cannot help and prevent them from destroying themselves as Kamira did. And then a short time later, the Worthy leave in their ship and surprises Mr. Scott by traveling at an amazing warp three. The end. A happy ending coming out of despair. Yeah, I didn't like I didn't like the trick. I mean, I kind of liked it, kind of didn't. The problem I have with the trick is, supposedly the Federation can't do anything about it because of the Prime Directive, which Kirk breaks all the time. We know that. Well, he was just on trial for breaking the Prime Directive, <laughs> exactly. and he was found innocent. Uh, exactly. So, even more so. So, obviously, uh, they can get away with breaking the Prime Directive. <laughs> um, but the thing is, if they're if they are, from a moral standpoint procedural standpoint, whatever, are staying out of a particular world's business because they're they're asked to stay out of it, well, I mean, isn't there something a little wrong with saying, hey, Worthy, you guys go wherever you want to and uh, get involved in anything. Just have fun. Knock yourself out. Well, I mean, technically the Worthy... wrong about that. Well, yeah and no. I mean, the Worthy aren't part of the Federation. Oh, I know that, but, but trying to... I mean, if what you feel is wrong, that you shouldn't interfere with the development of a of a society, especially if they ask you not to get involved, which is another thing that's kind of that throws me off a little bit. This idea that they say stay out of it, 
I mean, it seems like that's what you you think should happen for the planet's well-being, no matter who the other party is. Uh, but whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, otherwise, you're just imposing yourself on onto somebody that's asked you not to interfere. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I'm I'm happy that they found uh, something supposedly to do. Although, quite frankly, <laughs> I mean, uh, the the short-haired woman, what was uh, Aline or whatever her name is, right? Who starts uh, goes from being a cheerleader for Catalano to being kind of like uh, you know getting out the cattle prod and sticking them and saying. You never knew where we were going. You were always lost. We just ended up where we ended up out of blind chance. I mean, <laughs> I think right. that's funny. But so, I mean, these guys—I mean, these guys may have ended up doing the right thing in the end. That's why they became so famous. But it sounds like they're definitely not the uh, on top of everything uh, heroes that uh, history painted them to be. Right, which is why I kind of like the. That's why I thought maybe she was being a little sarcastic in the first issue. When oh. she was agreeing with him because she knew that he wasn't – they weren't these famous explorers. Uh, I mean, yeah, they were famous, but they weren't you know, the, the you know, bravely going and seeking out these places because, I mean, they really were just stumbling across them and things like that. Or at least right. that's the way I take it. Right. And, I, and that's cool. I just take it the opposite way, just saying uh, – that Aline was like uh, like blind cheerleader for all the time, and there wasn't any sarcasm in the beginning. But finally, she's like, you know, I'm seeing the light, and you've got a line of a uh, uh, BS here, Catalano, and I'm I'm telling you about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I did. Li- I did like her line about where she's like, uh, you know, you you sent them. To search for the <laughs> dragon, while you went to the west, no, uh, and then he's like, "But I was the one who found the dragon by accident." <laughs> Much to your surprise, not part of your plan, and you killed it while he was asleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Yeah, and 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 we, you know, in doing the synopsis, we can't really do all the details of what uh, Catalano was saying when he's embellishing the stories. But uh, yeah, he's a storyteller. Oh, and yeah. He, he's definitely painting them in the best possible light. Uh, so, hey, whatever. There was an episode of Star Trek Voyager uh, called... Uh, what was it called? Uh, Living Witness, I think is what it was called. Okay. Where the doctors, um, the holographic doctors, back up the, his, his backup unit is reactivated like 400 years in the future and and he he sees how this the civilization that has had contact with Voyager at one point has painted this picture of of how Voyager were these you know basically pirates and evil and just going out and destroying all these other planets as they made their way home and all this other stuff which when I was reading this I was getting a little bit of that vibe just kind of in the opposite where you know, somebody who really was just blindly going out there is is being remembered as being these great explorers, right? And I just, I just, I think that's funny. And and you know, obviously, there's a lot of that in 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 real life too, where oh, yeah. we find out four hundred years later that, well, maybe this guy wasn't quite as nice as as every, all these kids' storybooks are painting him out to be. Sure. So, anyways, I, I just like that. I, I like that turn. 
that twist on a on a story or on a famous figure type thing. Yeah, kind of like the revisionist history of Columbus. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier, and I, I'm I guess I, I haven't heard what the uh, what is the revisionist. We could talk about it later. Let's talk about it later. I mean, yeah, let's do it later. It's not Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Although he was exploring strange new worlds. <laughs> yes, he was to get to India. That's right. Right, right. Like I mentioned earlier, in the opening scenes of this this comic, they've got some pretty cool, semi gruesome kind of uh, shots of what it's like <laughs> down on uh, on the planet after they've all killed each other. Uh, there's one guy in particular, uh, not in the center of the shot, but like in the upper right hand, one of the panels where uh, he's dead, very dead, and like like his arm is gone from like uh, like just below the shoulder, and you right. can see it's like gone. I mean, they don't have blood everywhere and that kind of stuff. But still, you know, it's a little little gruesome. You know, it gets gets across the point of the horror of what happened here. So I thought that was kind of good. Yeah, well, but what I didn't understand is how long is, have these dead bodies been lying around, and why have yeah. they not decomposed? Because these true. look fairly fresh. Yep. Yep. And, and another thing that I wondered about is how long has this gone on? I mean, they killed everybody on this entire planet. And this planet had been around for a while. I mean, right. I mean, it's the it, oldest it, it, spacefaring race they know of. Exactly. So they're all dead? Everybody? I mean, how long did that take? And they killed each other? I mean, was this nuclear war that just happened in a flash? Uh, or did it take a long time? And if it was that bad, I mean, I'm surprised the uh, the Federation didn't know more about what was going on. Yeah, and also, they never colonized any other planet but this one. I mean, they never... Mm, that's I mean, they point. sent the worthy out, but they yeah. never sent anybody else out to colonize a neighboring star system. Right. Good point. Seemed odd that it would just be one planet's destroyed and suddenly their whole race is gone. Right. Except and and nothing on the whole planet is is working except for this big monument that has a flame at the top. No, <laughs> I just I wanted to know who who yeah. keeps that going. Who who's, exactly? Who makes it, sure that the 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 pilot light doesn't go out and restarts uh, it every so often? In the Worthies monument, yep. <laughs> well, yeah, have, you, have you seen the uh, the movie The Road? Uh, no. Depressing movie, but uh, in that it's some. They, they're not specific about things, but it looks like it's post-apocalyptic uh, nuclear war, uh, you know, nuclear winter kind of thing going on. Right. And even then, even with what's depicted there, post-nuclear uh, Armageddon, whatever, people are still. I mean, there are still people alive. I mean, the world's population is severely re, uh, reduced and still reducing, but there are still people alive. So, the idea that right. absolutely everyone would be dead, or at least everyone that they've been able to scan so far, because Spock says, I scan the most heavily populated areas, so, you know. That's a good point. There could have been somebody, there could have been some people in bunkers or something. Maybe. Concrete bunkers. Maybe. Or in a lower populated area that nobody bothered bombing. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. They did write them off pretty quick. Yeah. It makes it, it's, yeah, it makes it easier that way, doesn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a comic book. Exactly. It lets them go off. Yeah, for adventure to see what other uh, planets they could save. At, at a blazing warp three. Well, 
not bad for a ship that didn't have warp drive, or we assume didn't have warp drive. Yeah, so this is where I wanted to talk about that warp thing, because that just still boggles my mind. That they were they did all those adventures and got lost for three hundred years, right? And were able to <laughs> enable the ship with warp drive in in a matter of days. Well, because they're super smart. These these worthy guys. Boy, you ain't kidding, boy. But the thing, I mean, of course, this is all made up stuff. I know, but hey, you know, <laughs> you need in you need nacelles. You need a warp reaction chamber. You need antimatter. I Dilithium mean, lithium crystals. Dilithium crystals, right? So Scotty was pretty generous with, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, just go take the shopping cart and go down to engineering and pick up whatever you need. Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't even think about all that. That's uh, funny. It just, yeah, it just, eh, whatever. It just seems kind of funny. And then the whole, you know, the whole Styles thing, having him show up and then be like, I'm with you, Kirk. We're gonna well, trick them. Uh, well, I, I, like I said, I wasn't a big fan of the trick. Well, it didn't. Yeah, it seemed a little hokey to me. But actually, one thing I do like about the styles in this book is there's some complexity to them. Because definitely in Star Trek Three, it wasn't like they had a lot of time to develop the character. Right. I mean, he he was. I mean, he was set up to be a jerk. Uh, he had his riding crop, and he was gonna kick Kirk's ass and, you know, catch him and all that kind of stuff. So when the parts taken out of the engine by Scotty ruins the whole thing for him uh, and Kirk and company, you know, take off, no problem. You're like, yeah, you're a jerk, Styles. You got what's coming to you. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, characters like that in movies are painted in a very single-dimensional kind of way. At least in this book, um, he, he was made a little bit more three-dimensional. Which I liked. I mean, they, they bothered taking the time for that anyway, which I'm surprised. Yeah, and I also liked how the, he actually mentions that because of, or he, he, you know, we don't know for this for sure, but he he blames Kirk and Scotty for the whole failure of the entire transwarp program. Oh, so, yeah, that was like, that's kind of, that's going overboard. Although I must say, um... There sure seems to be a lot of different variations on warp drive that have cool names that always seem to go bye bye. Well, trans warp is the one that comes back, which is which is odd. Well, okay, so next gen, at least at the beginning of next gen, they're not using trans warp. No, but they do use trans warp in the episode The Descent, part one and two. To follow a board cube, Jordy finds a way to create okay. a, a trans warp. Okay, so Field. okay, so the Borg technology—I forgot exactly what they call it—apparently transwarp, where uh, where the, the the Borg secret to be able to to, to cover distances uh, much bigger than warp drive can do for you is some kind of conduit or something it builds and goes through. So that's transwarp. That's the same thing as they were well, trying to do back in uh, Star Trek Three. Yeah, I don't know because uh, in Star Trek. The next generation, they don't mention it as a, being a conduit. The conduit thing comes out of Voyager. Right. Exactly. I, I completely agree with that. That's why I wasn't sure it was the same thing. Well, they they always just call it transport. So yeah. I'm assuming it's the same thing. Okay. But I'll what do ahead. I know? I'm just a I'll fan. I'll go with it. <laughs> I'm just a fan, not an engineer. 
<laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. So Fringe is coming on this week again. I've never watched an episode. New season. Good show. Big Bang Theory today. Matter of fact, I think I just missed it. Anyway, back to the uh, back to this issue. Okay. Do they say hilarious in uh, the Fringe? What brought that up? Hilarious. No, I just uh, I just thought I'd mention it. This this being a a fan show of science fiction, and that's definitely good sci-fi. I think. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. My uh, father-in-law keeps wanting me to watch it. It's good I stuff. just uh, don't you, have time. Yeah. Can't watch everything. <laughs> exactly. I can't. Uh, I can't do everything. I'm I'm watch, uh, busy watching my uh, Superboy reruns. Come on, what's wrong? That's just it. I don't even have time to watch those, man. Oh, man. <laughs> but at least you have time to do this. So, yep. Let me see. Oh, so it was good to see uh, Styles come up with his writing crop. Because I was wondering what was going on with that. Because every time they showed him in the previous issues, he didn't have the writing crop. Right. Yep. I guess too many people read the first issue going, who's this guy? <laughs> oh, he has the writing crop. I know who he is now. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know him for sure now. Uh, you laugh. I bet that probably was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as he starts you know, having those thoughts, or is this the first time he has thoughts that, that nails him as being the styles? From Star Trek Three, um, in the second issue, you might have gotten that idea. Anyway, I, I, they're, they're, I don't know. At first, it's like Styles in the first issue. Styles, Styles. Oh, that's right. They, they, yeah. So Styles, Styles. That sounds familiar. That's not. That's not the guy from that one where uh, uh, on the Excelsior, is it? And then, then finally, uh, I think it's actually Admiral Tomlinson that says something about. Uh, not letting Kirk get the best of you again. Yeah. The last time you tried to go after him. Dry dock styles. <laughs> right. But then but he wasn't really styles to me until I saw the crop. Because the hair wasn't <laughs> right. The hair wasn't right, damn it. Mustache, right? He had a mustache in Yeah, the, in he the needs movie, that right? mustache. Exactly. Anyway, again, Good. maybe it's something he, he doesn't have the maybe they don't have the rights to uh or is that a contract? Everybody, everybody that does a Star Trek movie has to give up your rights to your image or something. I know that the Star Wars actors do. I don't know about the Star Trek, or at least right. older ones. Right. Like, but the movies are medium. I mean, Star Trek was always a, already a big hotshot franchise. You'd think by then they would have had them sign those contracts, but maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Right. What else you got on this? Because I don't have anything. I like at the end when the robot said, That does not compute. <laughs> you is, like that? I love that because that was definitely a page directly out of Lost in Space's old robot. It was. So I, I kind of like that. Yeah. So when you were reading this, did you hear that voice every time Robot talked? No, but I definitely heard it when he said that. Oh, uh, I, I, I had it in my head that he was Robot, so he he talked like that through the whole the whole. <laughs> And notice in the first issue, uh, it was lightning that was attacking the landing party. Which... Yeah, because that's what Robot had. Exactly. He had lightning coming out. That was his defensive mechanism. Because it was easy to animate. I guess so. I guess so. Because right. you got to admit, those phaser shots in the original series look pretty cheesy. Oh. Uh, what, Lost in Space? No, the, the first Star Trek. 
Oh, Star Trek. Well, yeah, yeah, but because eh. uh, I think I, he Lost in Space, they looked kind of lightning-ish, didn't they? I don't remember exactly. Or I do remember. I do remember when I was a kid. I loved their ray guns, Lost in Space, the, the newer ones. So the first season, they had kind of like a black kind of ray gun that actually kind of looked a little bit like the Cage Phaser pistol. Okay. A little bit like it, but not nearly as cool. And they got rid of that, and then they had they had these really long, silvery laser guns, which when I was a kid, I loved those. I thought they were great, but uh, I'm not so crazy about it now. They look kind of stupid, quite frankly, <laughs> now that I am an adult. You're an adult. All right, what else you got? I got nothing else. Okay, so real quick, Expanded Universe stuff. October 1990. We had an original series novel called Unseen Enemy by V.E. Mitchell. And if I'm not mistaken, this is a post-motion picture before Wrath of Khan story. Hmm. Uh, I might be wrong. I don't have the picture in front of me. But there's a wife of an ambassador that's the Enterprise is transporting somewhere. And I think that Kirk is actually offered one of the wives. Yeah. So the ambassador brings his wives, and and uh, one of them's an old flame or something. I I don't I don't really remember the circumstances. But basically, it's a Kirk has to deal with being offered a a wife from uh, an ambassador from another planet. Uh huh. Good stuff. So November 1990 was the Next Generation novel called Exiles by Howard Weinstein. Huh. Um, I never read this one, but. Just wanted to mention that Howard Weinstein will be taking over the original series comic book duties from Peter David, starting with issue number 17. So Peter David will write a few onesie twosies in the future, but for the most part, Howard Weinstein will have it all the way up until issue number 75. Uh, and then in December of 1990, an original series novel called Home is the Hunter by Dana Kramer Rolls. Uh, this is her only Star Trek contribution. But uh, in this one, Kirk and the Klingons have to work together to fight a mysterious and powerful alien named Wayland. Hmm. And what what Wayland actually does is it decides to punish the Enterprise and sends three of their crew members uh, back in time. So Sulu is in ancient Japan. Uh, Scotty is in 18th century Scotland on the eve of a revolt. And Chekhov is sent to World War II Russia, where he has to fight Nazis. Oh, boy. And the interesting thing about this book is that Wayland refers to himself as being part of a continuum. Hmm. So it he may or may not be part of the Q continuum. It's never specifically said. Mm-hmm. But just interesting little, like I said, people who want to tie, uh, tie things together right? May, may read a little more into that line than, than others. And so that's it. Uh, I'll, we'll do January uh, next time we do original series comics. Sounds good. So let me look real quick at our schedule. So next episode 64 we will do the original series issues number 13 through 15 so Good. and we'll talk a little bit about season four of the original series which starts up these same months so that'll be interesting okay 
All right, so that's it. Any anything else we need to talk about, Ken? I don't think so, man. All right. Well, thanks for everybody to listening, and we'll talk to you next week on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Bye. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.